Welcome to episode two of the Alabama Literacy Network's podcast, which is designed to share information and best practices for literacy in the state of Alabama. We represent various groups working on literacy in the state. We hope to bring a wide variety of resources together to help school leaders, teachers, and parents so that all children read at high levels. We believe that literacy is a fundamental right that is tied to so many positive outcomes that we want for the citizens of Alabama. In our last episode, we talked to Representative Terry Collins, sponsor of the legislation that is now referred to as the Alabama Literacy Act, and the co-sponsor of the bill, Representative Alan Baker. This week, we will be talking to Mr. Nick Moore, Education Policy Advisor and Coordinator of Governor Kay Ivey's Office of Education and Workforce Transformation. Mr. Moore is one of the people in the state who has been spearheading literacy initiatives, specifically the governor's Strong Start, Strong Finish, as well as the Campaign for Grade Level Reading. I'm your host, Dr. Shelley Vale smith So welcome, Mr. Nick Moore. Thank you, first of all, for taking time out of your schedule to be with us today. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Bill Smith. It's my pleasure. And uh, as always, uh, a pleasure to chat with you and speak with our broader network of Alabamians involved with literacy efforts and educating our children. So it's a pleasure to be with you today. Thanks. So can you tell us a little bit about your background? and how you got involved with literacy. Sure, so um, I'm a native of Enterprise, Alabama, and I began my career teaching high school through Teach for America in Lowndes County. And I saw as a teacher in Lowndes County that as as a state, we could do more to support our teachers and particularly our at-risk communities uh, to close many of the gaps that unfortunately get baked into uh, the puzzle early on. And so what I saw in my time teaching is that a lot of the issues that we're dealing with in regard to deficits in student achievement are A, things that are causal factors beyond just what's happening in the classroom, B, that our parents and our teachers are doing their very best and see there is a way for us, um, you know, when I made the transition in state policy and sort of squared that circle, that there's a lot more that we could be doing to ensure that we're connecting the stakeholders and community uh, members that are helping to navigate those aspects of a child's life outside of the school day, like healthcare, like nutrition, access to high quality before, after school and summer activities and and mitigating the other comorbidities that are associated with childhood um, health and and other adverse circumstances that could keep families from uh, being successful in the classroom. And we're doing this through a two generation approach because we recognize that, uh, you know, many, likely most of the time, the best way to reach an adult who may have barriers entering the workforce and may have their own literacy deficits is through the prism of working through their child. And Governor Ivey also recognized, uh, because she was a, a teacher and that was her first job too, uh, that a, a, a child's best first teacher is their parent. And the best investment we can make as a state is a dollar invested in those first eight years of life because we don't get a do-over on it. And it's not like there's some 
magic line in the sand that says, okay, a kid's now eight and they, they switch from, you know, learning to read to reading to learn. But there is, uh, based on brain science and based on all of the best literature, a early childhood developmental spectrum. And so the governors identified sort of three phases between birth to age eight, the first fo- focusing on the first three years, preparing a child through things like home visiting, things like uh, making sure, as I said, parents are the child's best first teacher by supporting families, not telling them what to do or tell them how to raise their children. But for example, a lot of our families are on a fixed income. And so uh, canned goods, frozen foods, processed foods may go further on a limited budget. Um, but you know, what can we do to inform families about SNAP farmers market matching programs or ways that you know, to realize you don't have to be a gourmand or a gourmet chef to cook a nutritious meal that's still appealing. And so a lot of these things are designed to support families. And then so the second phase is about high quality pre-K and early childhood education in a, in a diverse delivery spectrum. So we've got high quality private providers. We've got parochial providers. We've, of course, got our first class pre-K program, Head Start initiatives that are delivered by our Department of Early Childhood Education and Department of Human Resources. And we're proud that our first class pre-K program has met all 10 of the National Association for Early Childhood uh, Research, or NEAR, and I I butchered their name, but it's NEAR, National Institute for Early Education Research. That's it, NEAR. All 10 of their uh, benchmarks of high quality uh, learning for the first class pre-K program. And so we're working to continue to, to reach saturation where it's going to be about 70%. We're at about 40% now. So we're about you know more than halfway, but we want to get to where every family who wants their child to attend a first class pre-K has a chance to do that. And then also uh, making sure that we're building onto that and, and ensuring that uh, children are literate and numerate by the, by the age of eight. And so a lot of the, the work in the Literacy Act is, you know, and then there's a misconception that all of a sudden we're going to just start focusing on literacy in third grade. But really the point is that the process of getting a child to be literate, particularly for children that face, uh, you know, any kind of trauma, uh, those that experience adverse childhood experiences and episodes, those that are at risk socioeconomically, this spectrum that really begins in the earliest of years all the way through age eight is indeed that a spectrum. And so again, there's no magical line in the sand and the elements of the Literacy Act are the most important are those that are based on professional learning and support and giving parents and families the data and support they need to create a community, an ecosystem and kind of a reciprocal feedback loop between educators, families and community stakeholders so that everybody sees that this this quest of meeting each one of those three benchmarks of early childhood development and early childhood education and then literacy and numeracy, they're all linked. And each one of those stakeholders, you know, is indelibly uh, part of that process. And so it, it, you know, it's taken quite a bit of of work and and there's a lot more work to do. And and I also know that I've completely filibustered my answer to this question. So I'll stop talking before I, I answer too many of the questions. 
Well, no, that's that's so fine. Um, and it's uh, amazing how interrelated all the different pieces are. And so uh, I think your answer really uh, shows people just how many pots that you've had your hands in trying to get so many of these different things going. Um, and so I will take you back because I do think you uh, have so much to share on, you know, strong start, uh, strong finish. But one of the things that I find really interesting is your role in workforce development. And uh, having talked to some other people in workforce development recently, we do have a crisis in workforce development uh, brewing in the state. And I really know that part of your interest in this is related to uh, that aspect of your job. Yeah, well, I appreciate you bringing up workforce development because this, you know, just as I said literacy and and the idea of getting a child to be literate numerate is part of a three benchmark spectrum let's extend it out to five benchmarks now and that's really what we're talking about with a p20w spectrum p being you know, preschool or we could really call it b20w or birth and then 20 are those 20 years of education from kindergarten through graduate school and w being the workforce so we covered early childhood education, we covered preschool and pre-K and early childhood, you know, learning itself and then literacy and numeracy. Well, after that, we need to make sure that we're hitting what we call an experiential deficit. So those same children that may be coming in with a deficit in literacy and numeracy also may be living in an experiential desert. And what I mean by that is how can a student know what they want to be if they've never seen what there is to be. And so if we're in a very rural area or even in the middle of a big city to where a student may not be able to travel more than a few blocks or due to transportation from where they reside, we've got to do our best through, through organic career exploration and discovery to make sure students understand the opportunities that are out there and then connect their interests and aptitudes to those opportunities. And so we're beginning now with intentional career exploration activities as young as fifth grade because of the reauthorization of the Carl D. Perkins Act that provides funding for secondary career um, technical education provides for that. We're also launching something called <clears throat> the Alabama College and Career Exploration Tool or ASSET. And the ASSET is really going to be our one-stop hub for accessing education workforce training, but it begins with intentional career exploration activities. And so what I mean by that is often the way that we do career exploration is we sit a kid down for a 20-minute activity like a Rorschach test or something, and it spits out, oh, you're going to be an architect <clears throat> in five minutes. And so that's really not doing right by the kid because or the student or the adult job seeker because you're not going to be able to glean a lot of actionable data out of such a you know indirect and, and short experience and so what the asset's going to do is over a series of, of years through game-based activities for kids and you know there's commensurate uh, portal for adults and it's a little bit more to the point but particularly for kids, 
you can imagine a kid beginning in fifth grade and then exploring all the 16 clusters so that when they're in eighth or ninth grade, they can have somewhat of a, a good sense of what they're interested in. And of course, it's malleable at that point. They can move and change as, as they do. But we have a more empirically based sense of, of direction there. But beyond that, um, you know, for the for the fifth phase, we're also talking about our success plus attainment goal. And so the, the you know the first three phases, again, birth through entering into pre-K, and then the second is pre-K. Then the third is literacy and numeracy. Fourth, intentional career exploration and discovery and a focus on new era CTE, merging academic and technical skills, getting beyond the stigma of competency-based education. And the fifth benchmark is our post-secondary attainment goal. The governor recognized that we needed to add 500,000 additional skilled and credentialed workers to our workforce by 2025 if we're gonna be able to keep up with the demand for a skilled workforce. We've got, you know, over $8 billion of ec economic investment in the state last year. For each new Toyota Mazda plant, you know, 4,000 new people needed there. We got thousands of open STEM jobs. In February, before COVID-19, the biggest problem we had as a state regarding workforce is not enough skilled workers to fill the open jobs. And so as part of you know, looking for silver linings. Indeed, the COVID-19 pandemic has been negative all around. And so, it, you know, I'm not making light of that. But as policymakers, you know, as the governor, the governor has to see a way out of that. And so what we've seen is that before COVID in February, we were looking at two primary populations or, or big groups to fill those 500,000 slots, one being our high school seniors. So every year we've got about you know, 55,000 high school seniors. 15% of those are not college and career ready versus those that graduate with a high school diploma. So we got a little bit of work to do. And Dr. Mackey and his team are working overtime with us to, to close that gap. And so is Chancellor Baker. But our high school seniors are somewhat, you know, that's not a big growing number. We, we're not having, you know, our birth rate is somewhat static. And so if we're going to get that to grow, of course, we want to bring people in from other states and we're working on that. But again, year to year, that number doesn't grow. And then we got 41% of Alabamians who are not participating in the labor force due to things like benefit cliffs. And so those are 16 to 64 that are not looking for a job and are not employed. So they're considered not in the labor force or on the sidelines. That's everybody from veterans, people recovering from substance abuse, those with you know, some sort of uh, uh, mental health uh, issue those that are you know, aging out of foster care, those that are on SNAP and TANF, otherwise known as food stamps or cash welfare. So people that have a true barrier entering education workforce, you know, long-term unemployed, basic skills deficient. And so what the governor did is in our 2020 WIOA plan, mapped each one of those special populations um, and, and carved out what's their share of our attainment goal. So rather than trying to meet this attainment goal of 500,000 new workers on the easiest to serve special populations, she focused on trying to get to that goal by serving on those with the most complex barriers, knowing that if we, if we hit it there, we would surpass it. 
because indeed we're going to be you know, hitting our high school seniors and others as we go. And so this also allowed for us to have a more evangelical focus on workforce development, not in the religious sense, but in the sense of going out and finding people where they are rather than waiting for them to walk in the door. And so before our 2020 combined plan, there's six performance metrics in WIOA. The denominator was always how many people walked in the door and the numerator is how many did you serve well. Well, the governor changed it to where the denominator is how many people are out there that actually need your help. And so whether they walk in the door or not, doesn't matter. You get your job is to go out and find them. And then the numerator is how many people you serve well. So that's going to get all of our people, you know, cross training, braiding funds, and looking at providing an individualized pathway to self-sufficiency. And so out of that sense of urgency and, and sense of excitement and vision, we've done some things like partnering with the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta to create something called the Dashboard for Alabamians to Visualize Income Determinations, or DAVID, which is a benefit cliff and self-sufficiency tool. Benefit cliffs are a negative externality to where someone's short-term interests are not aligned with their long-term interests because uh, people often, when they enter into paid employment uh, in, off of you know, intergenerational poverty or transfer payments, will lose more funds and transfer payments in the short term than they gain in, in paid employment. And so what we're doing is trying to hold them harmless in that transition and blend and braid all of our workforce programs so that they're not getting the rug pulled out from under them and that they will go into paid employment and be successful. And then also kind of looking at um, a new focus on 818,000 Alabamians who have been displaced by COVID-19. And so if we had two opportunity groups in February, high school seniors and those that are, weren't in the, in the labor force, now we got three, 818,000 people who in February may have had a job, but they weren't on a path to self-sufficiency necessarily. Some of them were, but some were working two jobs and maybe, you know, working as a waiter or waitress or working, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a job that was a good job or paying the bill, but was not going to get them to be in, in a place of self-sufficiency or a family sustaining wage in the long term. And so we won a $17.8 million grant last month that's going to allow us to scale a new infrastructure for combining competencies and credentials and short-term programs that are delivered on-site, employer-based, through a community college system, Alabama Technology Network. A lot of this is going to be work-based learning delivered asynchronously, uh, virtually. And we've seen through surveying, uh, we partnered with Signal Survey Firm. It's an Alabama-based firm. It's got a national reputation for polling. And we tried to get a native data set similar to what Strata had done with their Consumer Insight Survey. And we saw that a plurality of those that were displaced by COVID in Alabama did want to re-enter, but they wanted to not go into debt. They want to be an in-demand, high-wage job, and they wanted that to, to, uh, to be delivered short-term, but to articulate towards a long-term degree. And so what we're doing with the Workforce Stabilization Program through this grant is allowing people to enter into healthcare, IT, manufacturing, transportation, distribution, logistics, and construction, and enter into a in-demand job that's part of a career pathway. And all of our participants will be those that don't have a high school diploma or equivalency, so they can take advantage of something called the Ability to Benefit Program, which is a program through the U.S. Department of Education that makes a Pell Grant available to individuals who 
again, don't have a high school diploma or equivalency, but are part of a program or career pathway program. So then these individuals will have long-term access to post-secondary learning. So it's all about talent development and it's an imperative uh, that as a state that, you know, our, the apogee of our labor force participation was in July of 1997. It went down precipitously reaching in the deer of 57.5% and um, 2015, when, when Governor Ivey came into place, it was static. It was about 57.6%. You know, and uh, April of 2017, she raised it when she began this talent development strategic plan in January of 2018 to January 2019, raised the labor force participation rate over an entire percentage point. That was more than anybody, any governor had raised the labor force participation rate in Alabama's history. And a lot of it was because the focus on mitigating these benefit cliffs and barriers that people have. And, you know, of course it went down during COVID-19, but what's interesting is that it rebounded. Now our labor force participation rate is higher today than it was in February because we're focusing on short-term programs and reskilling people in a way that will allow them to get into one of our in-demand jobs because a lot of our industries are actually very resilient and some of those same jobs in advanced manufacturing that were open in February are still open today and so we've got a short window of time you know to and a dividend really to to earn by getting those 818,000 people into one of those jobs so that's why it's so important too for us to focus you know this whole spectrum P20W or B20W, because we have to ensure that we're hitting each one of these benchmarks. As a, in a state like Alabama, you know, we're not the richest state in the union, and we also don't have the highest population growth rate. So we've got to leverage each one of our state and federal resources and dollars, private sector partners, nonprofit sectors, all of our stakeholders, and focus on asset mapping all those resources to close. close gaps and barriers. So it's really about efficiencies. Wow. Um, like some of that just made my head spin a little bit just because that uh, is definitely out of my uh, sphere of experience. And uh, I was thinking as you were talking about as an educator, you know, how do we get kids ready for the workplace? And that's been our focus for a long time. But I would love to hear your thoughts about what the workforce development side of getting kids ready to take those kinds of jobs is. What's so important right now is showing how academic and technical skills are complementary. For example, for the, for the first time, we're allowed to count computer science as both a computer science credit and a mathematics or science credit. And it's important because we want students to see how it's not just about college or career readiness, it's about career pathway readiness. And there is so much uh, transferability between, you know, you look at any, anybody's career pathway um, in reality. I mean, you look at Governor Ivy, she went from being a school teacher to being the governor, right? And so is that a, a clear cut pathway that somebody laid down? Uh, no. And so really it's about how showing how skills are transferable and also destigmatizing um, multiple career pathways. 
a lot of that is is in a segmented marketing strategy and working with with parents and families to understand how uh, you know skills are not mutually exclusive. It's about how um, you know one one opportunity occupation can lead to a destination occupation. You know, somebody can move from being an LPN to being an RN to an MD. Um, and so that's why we're focusing on a two-pronged career pathway model. For in-school youth, it's focused on combining uh, dual enrollment, industry-recognized credentials, registered apprenticeship in some cases, so they can complete high school with an associate degree in, in many cases and go directly into the workforce. And we know that, or onto their next phase of post-secondary learning. And we know that trying to compress those experiences for our youngest learners is important because the more, uh, you know, the more uh, opportunity they have to more quickly get into the next rung of their education or the workforce, it gives them less of an opportunity to stop out or drop out or to have some other negative experience to get in the way, particularly for those that are at risk. And for our adults, we are combining adult education, post-secondary CTE and WIOA Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act, it's kind of our public workforce system funding, adult education, dislocated worker funds to give a more elongated pathway with multiple points of entry and exit for them because it's important that an adult can get a progressive wage increase, earn a couple credentials, and then go back into the workforce. And so modularizing and unbundling degrees is part of that strategy, showing how rather than having to wait two years to get an associate degree, you can break that down into four or five parts and then have somebody earn one, go to work for a while, or maybe just go all the way through. But it's kind of like an interstate. You got exits all the time, you know, or you know, you can just keep driving uh, until you reach the, the, the terminus. And so, you know, if I'm going to hop on Interstate 65, it's up to me if I'm going to stop in Greenville or go all the way down to Mobile. But the point, too, is when I hit Mobile, I don't just run off into the ocean. I get I get hit I-10, I either go east or west. So it's not about uh, necessarily a terminal point. It's about making sure that there's no roadblocks. And so our job is to prevent the traffic jams and prevent somebody from being impeded on that interstate pathway and letting them figure out what's the exit that is right for them. Wow. So one of the other things, and you've mentioned it because again, all of these things are very interrelated, it was the campaign for grade level reading. So uh, can you specifically tell us what the benefit of that was for Alabamians? Yes, ma'am. So the campaign for grade level reading uh, preceded the Literacy Act. And, you know, there's a national campaign for grade level reading. Um, our campaign for grade level reading was not directly affiliated with that. We, you know, listened from them and had a couple opportunities to meet with them. They're doing great things. But this was really grassroots and organic and was led by the governor and was in, invested in things that, as I mentioned at the very beginning, are actually parts of um, the, the act of, of educating and, and making a child literate that go beyond the classroom. And, and what the goal is, is to focus um, stakeholders led through the Children's Policy Council in each of our 67 counties to develop a vanguard of literacy champions that provide the resources, that provide the, the locations, uh, both physically, uh, virtually, um, and, and just the space for people to get together as stakeholders and support 
high quality summer school, after school programs to help develop um, you know, uh, quality standards as a community to say, what are the things that we want to be true for kids uh, in this community when it comes to, to literacy and to support families on things like nutrition and to help with asset mapping all of the nonprofits and community organizations, everything from food banks to farmers markets to pediatricians that would be able to foster support for families and, and to eliminate any barrier that might be in the way. The, the trick of the campaign for grade level reading is that, you know, for a long time, different communities in Alabama have had different people come in and say, you ought to do this and you need to do this and you need to do this. Really what we recognize is that our communities know what they need. Uh, what they need is somebody to listen to them and then help them figure out how to coordinate the resources to get the job done. And so by listening to our communities and just empowering them with the tools they need to get done with what they've been trying to do for a long time, it's just they've always had somebody, you know, trying to lead them down some other direction. Um, you know, that, that's kind of the trick here. So the, what the campaign for grade level reading in Madison County versus Marengo County is going to look a lot different because it's going to be led by the stakeholders in those communities that know what needs to be true for their kids. What we're doing at the state level is providing the coordination and offering the convening authority to get the right people at the room to do that listening so that they get what they need to, to be able to operationalize their vision. Okay, good. So I know that the governor was involved with the passage of the Alabama Literacy Act. Uh, where do you see this work currently in the state of Alabama? Right now it's in the implementation phase and you know it's important that um, we're doing everything that's necessary to support the professional learning. We're glad that the legislature provided additional resources. Uh, we're glad to see that more and more of our educators get multi-century language education. The letters program or language essentials for teachers reading and spelling has been extremely popular in the state and we're seeing thousands more of our uh, teachers sign up for that and, and begin to take advantage of it. And so um, what we will need to do between now over the next couple of years as the uh, different elements of the Literacy Act take effect is to continue supporting each of our superintendents, making sure that we do have um, our literacy coaches uh, put in place and that we are also through the the literacy task force and the committee for grade level reading, providing the high quality assessments and intervention programs that are really gonna be needed um, by each of our LEAs to make sure we're not seeing kids held back. Nobody wants to see kids retained. And the point of the Literacy Act is not to retain any children, is to make sure that A, kids aren't retained and also that we don't have kids in 11th grade that can't read Dr. Seuss. And so I think we can do both of those and, and, and get it done even during a period of time uh, like a pandemic. And in fact, the sense of urgency and innovation and really just, you know, teachers out there killing it every day on behalf of kids, I think, is providing us the, the type of environment that, that will allow us to, to do that. So I, I can't tell you how impressed I am and amazed with our educators and, you know, every time I get to go and, and speak with our teachers that are not only 
dealing with all the things that are involved with implementing something as vast as Literacy Act, but also having to become experts on on you know, remote and asynchronous instruction. It's it's amazing, and uh, you know the governor and and all of us at in Montgomery are certainly committed to doing what's ever necessary to give them the support they need, particularly at, during the throughout this academic year and that, that will probably be known as in history as the toughest school year in, that we've ever had. Absolutely. And, and I do think we're going to be seeing the consequences in the area of literacy for a long time because of what's happened with our, our students in schooling. So that's uh, a whole nother issue to enroll on another day. Uh, so are there some other things uh, coming out of the governor's office related to literacy or are you guys full right now? We're, we're always going to be uh, moving forward. And, I, you know, so right now we're getting ready to, for the, the STEM council, the Alabama STEM council will be meeting for the first time. And so, you know, that effort is there to support STEM and, and numeracy, just like the campaign for grade level reading was there to support literacy. And so, you know, the idea that we want children to be both literate and numerate is important. And so, um, you know, that, that STEM council will be working to support Dr. Mackey and Chancellor Baker and all of our institutions of higher education, workforce providers to come up with new, you know, innovative ways to continue expanding and democratizing access to the STEM disciplines with an, with an equity imperative. We want to make sure that we have more people of color and women that have access to high quality STEM education and that we are connecting as I mentioned earlier, academic and technical skills, and that we are pairing that with the organic career exploration and um, you know, project-based learning, STEM-based learning that connects the interest and aptitude and aspirations of our students to our in-demand jobs. Great. So what do you see really as the next state, uh, next steps for our state in terms of literacy? The next steps for, for literacy is going to be the that we have to implement the Literacy Act of Fidelity, and we have to continue um, ensuring that we are not taking any uh, shortcuts and that we are not, um, you know, we, we, we don't want to take one step forward, two steps back. And so as we go through, you know, what will be somewhat of a difficult transition we just have to have everybody keeping uh, the most important thing in focus, which is uh, the reason we did the you know literacy act, and you know why that the legislature passed that is because we needed to do uh, some things differently, and so we have to give those things a chance uh, uh, to do what they were intended to do before we would you know um, you know try to to um, you know think twice about some of those things. So what we're really going to need is everybody to to get on board, be excited about it, get the work done. And, and you know, every, the people that count, which are our teachers and students, really understand that. And so, um, you know, it's important for everybody, you know, the pinheads like me and, and the bureaucrats and uh, to, uh, to provide the support. And so we're, we're going to do all we can do to make sure that happens. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Thank you. So thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we appreciate both you and your support of literacy and numeracy in the state. 
Um, everyone, I hope you tune in for our next podcast episode where we will have an interview with Dr. Denise Gibbs of the Alabama Scottish Rite Foundation. Dr. Gibbs is recognized as one of the nation's leading experts on dyslexia. She is amazing. You're going to love her. This podcast was brought to you by Bright Spot Ed, LLC, an educational consulting company based in Alabama, providing consulting, professional learning, evaluation services, and resources Our goal is to highlight the good and replicate it across education. Check us out at brightspoted.com.